Hello, this is Dr. Mike Barnett with the First Baptist Church of Ocean Springs, Mississippi. Thank you so very much for tuning in to our podcast, and I pray that today's message will be a blessing and an encouragement to you. We are engaging our people at First Baptist Church in an emphasis called Who's Your Mission? It is a challenge to personal soul winning and personal evangelism for the year 2023. We've asked our people to ask God for at least one soul to be burdened for that they might go after that soul and win them to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the theme of these current messages. And I pray that they will encourage you to be a soul winner and go after one soul that needs to be saved now and to know Jesus now. I pray these messages will help you. And again, thank you for tuning in. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open with me to 1 Timothy, the third chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 through 16. If you want to use the Pew Bible, the text is on page 1670. If you have a Bible like mine, it's on page 1299. If you don't, I cannot help you, but uh, you'll find it. 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 14 through 16. For several years, I have desired to preach a series of Christmas messages from this text, and the Lord has always directed me elsewhere in in recent years. Sometimes when He does that and will not give me liberty to um, preach from a specific text, I always ask Him, well, Lord, what do I have wrong about it? Tell me me what, what I have wrong about it. But um, this year, he's opened up this door, and I've been considering this text for a while, and I want to tell you I'm royally blessed by these wonderful words uh, from verse 16 in particular, and I hope for the next several weeks they'll be a blessing to you and an encouragement to you. And the reason they're so wonderful is because they're about Jesus. It just tells us about Jesus. And so... Uh, we begin. It will not be long we will be singing Christmas carols. Uh, I would tell you that the Christmas carols that we sing are arguably the most in-depth songs that we sing in terms of theology, the study of God. They were written by people who... uh, were just attuned to the scriptures and uh, what they had to say. Read some of Charles Wesley's Christmas carols. Uh, get you a hymn book. You can take one home with you. And just leave ten bucks on the pew. And, <laughs> but read some of Charles Wesley's Christmas carols and you see such a great depth uh, of theology by that man who wrote, having just loved Jesus, he just loved the Lord. Not only are the carols resplendent with theology, but they're the most well-known. You can be in Walmart and they can play the, the, uh, the music of a Christmas carol and you'll start singing it. You'll clear the aisle, but you'll start singing it. Even in, uh, amongst the world. Lost people, people who don't know Jesus, they won't darken the doors. They're... They never come to church. They don't even come to church on Christmas and Easter. You play one of the Christmas carols, it it just automatically clicks on in their mind, does it not? Then they know the words. Who doesn't know Silent Night? The words to Silent Who doesn't know uh, Away in a Manger? At least they recognize it when they hear it. But let me give you a warning. Let me tell you what's on the horizon in terms of recognition of the Christmas carols. In the state of Mississippi, the most religious state in the Union, the most religious state in the United States, 
only 38.5% of the citizens of the state of Mississippi claim to be born again. Claim to be born again. The balance either says, no, I am not born again, or I have no opinion. I don't even know what that means. So only 38.5% of the citizens of the state of Mississippi, the most churched state in the union, 38.5% say they have no relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Could it be, and it could very well be, that the last generation of those who will recognize the Christmas carols of the faith are our kids, our teenagers to this day, our college-age kids even. It could very well be. Ere long, the real meaning of Christmas, that to tell you the truth, because of the decline of church attendance in America, is upheld in terms of music. It could ere long be gone, be gone. And so we need to be in prayer and we need to be on mission about that. And the reason I talk to you about Christmas carols today is because of the nature of our text, in particularly verse 16. This verse is a song. This is a song. There are many songs throughout the Bible. God's people of all ages have been singing people. I mean, it's, it's very obvious in the Old Testament, but it's also obvious in the New Testament. On the night of his arrest, Jesus was in the upper room, and he said, let's go to the garden. And they were going to the garden of Gethsemane, and what did they do as they left? They sang a hymn as they made their exit. Throughout the epistles... You could be reading Paul's epistles, and all of a sudden he'll just burst out in song. He'll just start singing a hymn of the early church, one of the earliest hymns. As a matter of fact, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, that long one-sentence section that I preached on many times and is one of my favorite sections of the New Testament talks about what God has done for us, what God the Father has done for us, what the, the Son has done for us, and what the God the Spirit has done for us, the Trinity, the Godhead. Many claim that that is a song, a hymn of the early church. Sometimes you read through the New Testament and the epistles of Paul and you'll read one line in a verse, and that is a quote from a hymn. The early church did much singing, and they sang of the incarnation. They sang about the coming of Christ in Bethlehem. As a matter of fact, on Christmas Day, we'll be preaching from a great Christmas carol, Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, and that's a case in point. That was an early church hymn. You can say it was an early church Christmas carol. It talked about the birth of Christ. Now, if you have your Bible uh, open and you, you, we're going to read this text in a minute, you may not see anything unique at first reading about it. And you might be asking the question, how do you know this is a song? Well, uh, sometimes in, in the, the Greek text, some of the Greek manuscripts, uh, they're set off. You might have an English translation before you that has this section of Scripture, verse 16, like a quote, or in quotes, or maybe set apart as a different paragraph, and, and that's recognizing uh, uh, an early uh, a Greek manuscript and how it's portrayed in those manuscripts. Sometimes is the, you're reading through, and it may not be set off in type or print, but it just all of a sudden just pops off the page like, where did this come from and why is this here? Not because it doesn't belong or not because it's confusing, but you're reading along in the New Testament epistle of Paul and all of a sudden you come to this wonderful text of Scripture like, like, like uh, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And then he talks about Jesus, the doctrine of Jesus, the incarnation, the exaltation, the resurrection, 
and uh, it gives us a theological treatise, and it's a song, but it belongs there. It belongs there. And this is how this song is presented in the text. You see, let me give you a little background, tell you what I'm uh, talking about. Uh, the book of 1 Timothy was um, a letter to the young pastor named Timothy who was at that time in Ephesus. He was pastoring the church in Ephesus. And that's key to understanding uh, some of the truths found in 1 Timothy. But he was in Ephesus, and Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's saying, I'm doing everything I can to get to you, Timothy. I want to come see you there in Ephesus, and I want to meet with the church. He loved the church at Ephesus. He wanted to go visit them and come back by. And he says, but I'm writing these things because I may not get to you, or I may be late, I may be hindered, so I'm writing these things to you, and I'm telling you how to behave yourself in the house of God. Isn't that amazing? Paul, the apostle's writing the pastor and say, you need to behave yourself. And then Timothy gets to get up and preach it to everybody else. But he's telling Timothy, this is how your church is to carry itself. And we're going to see more about this in just a moment. But that, and, and then all of a sudden he breaks out in song. See, in, in chapter 3, for example, he starts out in chapter uh, 3, 1 through 7, he's talking about the pastor's. And he's saying, this is the qualifications of a pastor. This is how a, a pastor is supposed to be. These are his qualifications. And then in verse 8, he starts talking about the deacons and their wives. And he says, this are their qualifications. This is how they need to behave themselves. And then he uh, comes back around and he says, you need to teach your church these things. And he says, I'm writing to you so you'll know how to behave and what to do and how to conduct yourselves until I get there, in case I don't get there. He says, I want to come see you, but it may not work out, so I'm pinning these letters to you, this letter to you. And so he breaks out in a hymn. Let's read the text. Verse 14, These things write I unto you, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou ought to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Now we can't stop there because he says in chapter 4 verse 1, Now the Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils or demons. Demonic doctrine. So he gives instruction about pastors and deacons and, and previous to that many other things. And then he says, I'm writing these things because I may not be able to come and teach you face to face. And then he burst out in song. He sings this Christmas carol. And it's also some Easter music. Is it all right to talk about Easter things during Christmas time? Yes. I hope it is because that's what we're going to do the next several weeks. We got to get him out of the cradle, amen, and get him to the cross, and then get him coronated. But nonetheless, he comes out and he burst out in song, and it's a song about Jesus. And then in chapter four, he says, "The Spirit says, the Holy Spirit says that in the latter times, which is now, which is now, which also is in Timothy's day, the latter times is when Jesus came the first time." The end times are right before he comes back. But these are the latter times. And he says, hey, it's going to get rough. There's going to be false teachers. You better keep the truth about Jesus intact. And he does it in this song. Well, why does he do it in a song? Why do us, is he a musical 
guy. Well, I mean, what's going on? Do y'all want me to burst out in song? Yes. <laughs> I will answer for that all the way home <laughs> if I did. Some, but seeing this, now, guys, we got to go home and watch musicals. Because it was biblical for Paul to burst out in song. And those guys on those movies just burst out in song. So here we go. I'm sorry. I need to get a, get a royalties check from the movies. That, Fred Astaire. Why does he break out in song? The same reason we sing. The same reason we sing. We sing because of a full heart. An abundant heart beat down all week long. We get to come in here with other Christian people who have faced the brunt of the battle and talk and sing about Jesus. And we have an abundant heart of praise when we come in here. And then there's a, it's a method of teaching. He's teaching some truths in this song. We sing because of teaching. It's a way of teaching. When I was working on my master's degree, I was in um, Hebrew. I took uh, a lot of semesters of Hebrew, and I remember my first week in Hebrew class. Our kids were little bitty, and that word, kids are little bitty, translates into one thing. A purple dinosaur was on our TV a lot. You remember what I'm talking about? Barney the Dinosaur. And the first week in class, I came home, and Miss Tracy said, well, how did class go? I said, Tracy, I said, here's the grammar. Uh, here's the notes. I said, we got to write the alphabet, learn and write the alphabet and learn verb conjugations by next class. And so I've got to learn the alphabet first and learn how to say it and write it. And our daughter, was it our daughter, put in... The videotape, showing my age. The videotape of Barney the Dinosaur, and it was a musical. And in the alphabet song, he sings the alphabet in several languages. And he does it in Hebrew. So I sat there with the machine, the little hand machine, the, the remote control, and I rewound the Hebrew. Olive, bait, gimel, dollet, hey, yod, sign. And I did it like Barney the dinosaur did it. <laughs> so I go to the class the next week, and, I, they, the, and he says, take out a blank piece of paper and write out the Hebrew alphabet and, and make sure it's in order. So in my mind, I'm going, olive, bait, gimel, uh, like the dancing dinosaur on the TV. So we, we, it's a method of teaching, and I learned it that way. Amen? You know what? There's a song you all remember called Row, Row Your Boat because you learned it because of the way it was written and the way it was presented to you. It's a way to, to uh, it's a method of testimony. Many of the hymns that we sing in this church are worship songs. They, they extol the Lord. But did you know also many of the songs we sing are testimony songs. We're singing not only to the Lord, but to one another, to each other, and to the lost in our midst. And we're singing about the glories of God and what he's meant to us. And sometimes they're challenging songs, a way to convey, uh, convey truth. So this is a Christmas carol, and it's packed with the theology of a Christmas carol. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at a Christmas carol, ecclesiology. Ecclesiology, you ready for this? It just simply means the doctrine of the church. What does the Bible say about the church? And then the Lord will, and next week we're going to get into the doctrine of Christology, the study of Christ. In particular, we're going to look at his humiliation when he became a man. And then after that, we're going to, Lord willing, we're going to get into missiology, the doctrine of missions. That's right here in our Christmas carol text. You can't have Christmas without missions. Don't we sing a hymn, go tell it on the mountain. 
Go tell it on the mountain. And so, Mishala, and then the following week, the Lord willing, we'll go back to Christology. Boy, you can never have too much Christology. Talking about Jesus, we're going to look at the doctrine of his exaltation, how he was exalted, received up into glory, and all that that means for us. So this morning, we need to quickly consider a Christmas carol, Ecclesiast Ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. The doctrine of the church. Timothy, as I said, is serving as pastor at the church at Ephesus. And it's a local church. And it's a book, the book of Ephesians was written to this church. And um, it's a glorious book. The Baptist Faith and Message, the confessional statement adopted by the Southern Baptist Convention, which we also hold to in our church here at First Baptist, the 2000 edition. It says this about the church. It says, A New Testament church of the Lord Jesus Christ is an autonomous local congregation of baptized believers associated by covenant in the faith and fellowship of the gospel, observing the two ordinances of Christ governed by his laws, exercising the gifts, rights, and privileges invested in them by his word and seeking to extend the gospel to the ends of the earth. The Baptist faith and message continues to say the New Testament speaks also of the church as the body of Christ, which includes all of the redeemed of all the ages. Believers from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So there is a universal aspect to the church. There's believers who love the Lord Jesus all over the world. You can go all over the world and find born-again believers, and that's part of the church. As a matter of fact, the book of Ephesians speaks in terms of the church universal. And by the way, we, we talked about Dr. Fisher. By the way, the, church, the book of Ephesians is addressed to the local church at Ephesus, but it talks about the church in heaven and the church on earth. Your loved ones who died in Christ are the church in heaven. They just moved their letter. That's what's happened. They're with the Lord. What a glorious thing. And so I hasten to say, though, that the church is manifested in terms of the local. As we read the epistles of Paul, usually the first verse in the epistles is to the church at somewhere. The church at somewhere. The New Testament portrays the church as being at somewhere. This is a message to the local church at Ephesus, in particular to its pastor, Timothy. Ephesus is a local place. But these truths are fundamentally held by the church everywhere in the universe. You know, when, when COVID was hit and then when Peter Anderson came and we pre-recorded that service and encouraged you to watch it in homes and, and, and invite Sunday school classes over because we just couldn't get downtown, I had somebody say, Dr. Mike, is it, is it weird preaching to an empty church? And at first I said, yes, it is. It's weird. But then I thought, that's a terrible answer. That's not a biblical answer. Because I'm not preaching to an empty church. I'm preaching to an empty building. The church is always full. It is full of the Holy Spirit. It is full of love for one another. It is full of Christ. It is full of the nature that Christ gives us and desires of the Lord. And so... This is the church at Ephesus. Ephesus was a very sinful city. It was a very religious city. It uh, possessed um, a spirit of religious tolerance. If you were to go through Ephesus today and it was as tolerant as it is as it, as now as it was then, if it was still in existence, you would ride through that city and on the 
bumper stickers you'd see everybody have a, have a coexist bumper sticker. They tolerated everything. You want to believe it? That's fine. As a matter of fact, in the uh, city, over 50 gods were worshipped. The chief of the gods was Diana. In some of your translations, you might have the name Artemis. They're the same. Diana is the Greek name. Artemis is the Roman name. Yet the one true God, the Lord God Jehovah, the one we preach about from this book, the Bible, he had his people there in Ephesus. And he had his pastor there, young Timothy. Paul had gone and preached the gospel. In Acts 19, he showed up and he started preaching the gospel. And many people believed. And people were saved. And a church... The called out people of God were saved and they started a church, a local church. You can read about it in Acts 19. And here he gives us some instruction about the church. So what is he talking about here? Well, first of all, he tells us about the God of the church. The word church is the Greek word ekklesia. That's where we get our word ecclesiology, ecclesia. And it simply means the ones called out or the called out ones. A church is the people of God who have been called out of the world, out of their sin, unto Christ. They've been called unto Christ and they have heeded the call and they've come to Christ. And here he speaks of the behavior of, of the called out ones. Now, if you notice, it says in, in this verse 15, it says, I'm writing to you because if I don't get to you quickly or soon, you'll know how to behave yourself. How many of you learned when you were growing up how to behave in church? I, learned, my, I can remember my mama and daddy having to discipline my brother and sister because they didn't know how to behave in church. You believe that? I had an old-fashioned parents, folks. They'd take us out, wear us out, and bring us back in. And the coming back in was the worst part of it. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Raise your hand. Boy, that's a dying thing, isn't it? Amen? Woo! And mama could pinch. Oh, she could pinch. And years later as an adult, as a pastor, I wanted to say, Mama, why did you pinch? Because we'd holler out and disturb everybody. So if you want to pinch them, carry them out, pinch them, and bring them back in. But he's not talking about that kind of behavior in church. The word behave thyself means to turn upside down. And what he's saying is, is you Ephesians who worshiped one or more or all of those 50 gods... The Lord Jesus Christ has turned you upside down. You don't act like that anymore. You don't worship like they did in those temples anymore. You worship this way. You don't have those temple priests and those temple prostitutes anymore. You have these men who are your leaders, the bishops and deacons he had just talked about in chapter 3. And he says this is the way God orders his church. It has nothing to do with how they order their temples, those pagan temples. And so he gives us the what, the why, and the how of that type of behavior in church. What? These things. The Word of God, the Holy Spirit. I write unto you these things, Paul said. This is our guidebook. This is our manual. This is what God has given us to instruct us. In Ephesus, you had all those gods. And you know what you had? You had soothsayers. You had magic people. As a matter of fact, there was uh, magic, quote-unquote, in Acts 19. And God says, That's, you don't go to the occult. You don't go to the, to the dark arts, so to speak, to get your instructions. Don't bring any of that in here. You have my word, and I have my apostles who are pinning the word of God. The pages of the New Testament, my prophets, the pages of the Old Testament, the Word of God. 
As a matter of fact, when Paul came and preached at Ephesus, people got saved, and you know what the Bible says they did? Acts 19, 19 says, Many of them also, which used curious arts, brought their books together and burned them before all men. And they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So 50,000 pieces of silver, whatever that was worth, that's how much those books cost. People were turning to Christ, turning away from their books to the one true God with his book, and they were burning their books. You know what happened to me one time when I preached that from Acts 19? I got a letter the next day or the next week in the mail that said I was a Nazi because I was promoting the burning of books. Can you imagine such a thing? First of all, I can't believe I read it because it was anonymous. But second of all, I wish I could meet that guy or that gal who wrote that letter. That's the what, the Word of God. That tells us how to behave. Second of all, the why. Well, verse 15 says we are the household of God. We're the family of God. He's our heavenly Father. He's the head of the home. He's their heavenly Father. We have His character. And then he talks about the how. Verse 15, how do we conduct ourselves in accordance with His Word and live as His family? Because he says... The household of God, which is the church of the living God. So we are his family. That's the why. But this is the how. This is the church of the living God. The Greek, listen to this, the Greek literally says this, the God, the living one. He's the living God. The emphasis is on God who is alive. Always dynamic. He's always at work in our lives. He's always empowering us. He's always here with us. The Ephesian gods, all 50 of them, were dead. And when you were a worshiper of the Ephesian gods, you brought your life and put it in those gods. But we're the church of the living God. He takes our dead spirits and puts his life in it. And we're the church of the living God. We're filled with the life of God. We're empowered to do everything he says we need to do. And that's how we are obedient to him as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see the God of the church. Second of all, we see the guardianship of the church. Verse 15b, look at this. The pillar and ground of the truth. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth. The pillar, what does that mean? Well, you got to put it in a little bit of historical context. In Ephesus, that, that temple to Diana had 127 pillars that outlined that temple. You go in, either way, you had to walk past those pillars. 127 pillars. So the people of Ephesus, Ephesus would have that in their mind, that pictured in their mind as Paul said, you are the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, it supported the weight of that roof and structure. It certainly did. Each one of those pillars was 50 feet or 60 feet high, and each one of them was a gift from the king, a king, some foreign king paid for one of those pillars, 60 feet high, to support the structure of that temple to Diana. But Paul says, you, dear church, are the pillar of the truth. The pillar of the one true God's one truth, his word. Now, don't look at it in terms of a pillar of support. He supports us. We don't support him. But look at it in terms as a testimony. When Paul said you were the pillar of the truth, what immediately popped in their minds was those 127 pillars surrounding that temple. And they remembered the temple to Diana. But he says, you folks, the church at Ephesus, you people, redeemed the household of God, you are the pillars of the truth. You are a testimony to the truth. When people think of truth, they need to think of you. And then he says, you're the ground of the truth. 
the buttress. This speaks of holding the ground in a world that wants to eliminate the truth of the one true God, the church needs to stand solid on it and testify to it. That's what we're about. Folks, we've got to be about that or it's all said and done. And thirdly, we see the greatness of the church. Look at verse 16. And without controversy... Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Note the text is speaking about the one true God and the church of the one true God. And now Paul draws it home and he says, without controversy. You might have a translation that says um, basically... um, by common consent, by common consent. Well, that's, that's a great translation. They both mean the same thing. What does it mean? It means this. You and I and First Baptist Church, nor my friends at Woodhaven Baptist Church or Emmanuel or anywhere else along the coast, not even in North Mississippi, not even the churches in Starkville or Oxford. Nowhere do they get to say, this is what truth is, as we define it. The truth that we are the pillar, the testimony of, and the ground of, is God's truth contained in what is written. And it is without controversy. And if you have controversy with it or do not consent to it, then you're really not a church. I don't know what you are, but you're not the church of the living God because he alone tells us what his truth is and no one else. And it is without controversy. Nobody in the church argues what truth is what the body of truth is. As a matter of fact, he says, great, or without controversy, great is the mystery of God, that God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the nations, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Our ecclesiology, our Christology, our missiology, our Christology in terms of Christ's exaltation, every bit of it is taught to us by God in His Word. We do not fabricate it. We do not get to determine it. We declare it. That's how it is. Now, here he says something real interesting. We're talking about the greatness of the church. Notice what he says. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness, God. Is the greatness of the church in our programs? No. Is the greatness of the church in our music? No. Is the greatness of the church in our abilities to to preach and teach? And we have wonderful teachers. Is that where it's at? No. Certainly not in me. The greatness of the church is in Jesus. Let's break it down. Notice it says, great is the mystery. What is a mystery? Well, the New Testament definition of a mystery is always something that has been previously hidden that is now revealed. Okay? Is now revealed. That's what the the word means. It's not something that we don't know. It's something that has been revealed to us. In other words, it's not something that we fabricate or we thought up on our own. It is something that is revealed to us. And he says, great is the mystery of godliness. Now, godliness, what is that? Does this refer to our godly lives? Well, certainly we we have to have... uh, That's certainly revealed to us how to live a godly life. That's what the Bible's about. That's what the New Testament's about, how to live godly life. But the construction of the sentence reads a little bit different this way. It really says, great is the mystery of the godliness. 
And then he starts talking about what Jesus has done. Notice the King James says it this way. Great is the mystery of godliness, God. See, Jesus is our greatness. He is our greatness. Not what we do, but Him. But Him. He is our greatness. He is godliness. When Paul showed up, let me put this all together for you. When Paul showed up in Ephesus, he started preaching the gospel. These people started burning their books. And uh, these uh, people were being saved. Remember, people got saved and, and uh, it was awful for the business in Ephesus. The economy began to fall. And uh, these, the union got together. Nothing against union. This union got together and said, we got a problem. People aren't buying our books. They're not buying our idols anymore. We've had a dip in sales, and we got some trouble. We need to do something about it. Well, what's the problem? Well, this guy named Paul has come up into town. He starts preaching about this guy named Jesus who died and was buried and rose again and claiming that he's, he's God and we need to repent of our sins and turn to him, and all we're doing is sin. And people are following him, and they're turning away from our idols. So what did those guys do? Well, they contacted the Chamber of Commerce. No, they didn't. They started a riot. And they intermingled with all those people, and when it all came to a head, the people started shouting, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And old Paul would start to calm them down and say something. All of a sudden, they'd crank up again. Great is, the, is Diana of the Ephesians. Acts 19, read it. That's what they did. They wouldn't listen to anything. People had them fired up. But Paul says in our text, as he's writing to Timothy, when I started out in Ephesus, they started hollering, Great is Diana of Ephesians. And when you get on mission in your town, they're going to start saying that again. Great is, the, is Diana of the Ephesians. But you don't need to say that. You need to say great is Jesus. Great is Jesus. You just keep preaching Jesus to them and share the gospel of Christ. That's what he said to do. So Paul is saying Jesus is the one who's great. He's the greatness of the church. Folks, let's make much of Jesus. Make much of Jesus every moment of your life. Make much of Jesus when you come in here to worship. Let me share with you a couple of illustrations that I hope will encourage you. The ancient churches of the Nordic countries, many of them were Lutheran. And those old-time Lutherans, I want to tell you, they knew how, knew how to build a church building. They really did. After the, after the Vikings, you remember when, if, when the Vikings, when they had their ships, they had a dragon on the front of their ships. You know, it was supposed to protect them from, from uh, ill spirits and evil spirits. Of course, it was an evil spirit in themselves, you know. But they had dragons. Well, when those old Lutheran churches in Norway and other parts of the Nordic region of Europe, you know what they, when they built their churches, they would put dragons like that around the top of their buildings. Now, why in the world would you take something from paganism and put it on top of your building? Why in the world would you do such a thing? To you and me, that looks like poor architecture. But I want to tell you something. Those old Lutherans, they had some boldness. They had some courage, and they built their buildings to be a testimony to their whole community that worshipped those pagan gods held over from the Viking days, and they built their buildings with those dragons up top because on the lower levels of the roof, they had this. Look at that. What do you see? To us, who have steeples and crosses, we say, well, they're just accommodating the, the, that pagan world with those dragons. Oh, no, no, no. What the world saw back there, see, you've got to learn how to think like they do. We've got we to think like they do for a little bit. They saw those crosses sticking way out up front. And what they said was, instead of saying, oh, they, may, they must worship everybody. They must worship the pagan gods too. 
That, that's welcome me. No, what that cross way up front and on the lower level said, put your dragons behind you and come to the cross. Come to the cross. Great is my dragon. Greater is the cross. It sticks out and protrudes forward. It's stronger. It's better. It's soul-saving. This is the cross. Well, they knew how to build a building, didn't they? Amen. Well, if we ever remodel this sanctuary, put something on top, may, well, I don't know. That, I'm not going to get in that. I'd get run off for sure. Oh, the cross is greater. The cross is greater. Jesus is great. Great, great is Jesus of the church. Great is Jesus of the church. Let me give you another illustration. Y'all ready to do a little interaction? Will you, will you do it? Will you just trust me and do what I ask you to do today? Okay. A moment ago, Cooper Houston Niles passed by me. He hugs me every Sunday. And we chit-chat for a little bit and tell each other we love each other. And, and uh, he goes on children's church. So Cooper can't do this. Cooper Houston Niles cannot do that. I got the name right, didn't I? All right. My name is John Michael Barnett. That's my full name. Jack, what's your full name? Jack Wilson. Jack Fulton Lee. Where'd you get the name Fulton? I'm just kidding. That's his grandparents' last. Jack Fulton Lee. You have a full name. Glenn, what's your full name? Glenn Edwin Lowry. I'm not going to ask my redhead why, because she may not want to tell you. But what I want you to do, in a moment I'm going to go three, two, one, and I'm going to say, not screaming, but with a little bit of breath behind it, I'm going to say, John Michael Barnett, out loud, where you can hear it. And when I say three, two, one, three, two, one, I want you, every one of you in the balcony, every one of you down here, to say, not screaming, we're going to do it in order, but with a little breath behind it, your full name out loud. All right, let's practice. Three, two, one, John Michael Barnett. Did everybody do it? All right, now I want you to say a little louder. Ready? Because here it goes. Three, two, one. John Michael Barnett. That was the most discombobulated, hard to understand, confusing message I've ever heard coming out of this church building. How in the world are we going to know what's what with that? You know why we don't know what's what with that? Because this is not about John Michael Barnett or Glenn Edwin Lowry. It's about Jesus. I didn't understand what a one of you said. I couldn't even get Jack Fulton right. But now when I say three, two, one, I want you to say Jesus. Three, two, one. Jesus. I just know exactly what you're talking about there. Amen. Great is Jesus. He's greater than you. If you make yourself greater to him here at First Baptist Church, let me tell you what, it's going to be a discombobulated message. The world's not going to understand who we're talking about. You're going to be nothing but trouble. But if you make it about Jesus, everybody understands that. Yes. Amen. Let's make it about Jesus. It's about Jesus. That's what the church is about. It's about the message of Jesus. Friend, we do not get to determine the master of the church. It cannot be John Michael Barnett or Cooper Houston Niles. It cannot be. It must be Jesus. We don't get to determine the message of the church. What is the message of the church? Here's the message of the church. God was manifest in the flesh. God was justified in the spirit. God was seen of angels. God was preached unto the nations. God was believed on in the world. God was received up into glory. That's the message of the church. We don't get to preach anything else. We don't even get to pick out the music of the church, do we? We don't get to get up here and sing honky-tonk song, whatever it is. I know half of y'all don't even know what that is. We don't get to do that. 
We sing the songs that glorify our Savior and are true to the Word of God, and we work on that. We work hard on that. We don't sing the songs that appeal to the flesh. You say, oh, preacher, I like a little toe-tapping music. Well, go somewhere else. You might, you might tap your toe every now and then here at First Baptist Church, but I want to tell you, it's not about your toe. It's about bowing at his feet. That's good preaching whether you like it or not. Amen. We, we don't get to determine that. We don't get to determine the mission of the church. We don't get to determine what we want to do. He's already given us his mission. Paul says, I've given you a whole book. A whole book. The inspired words of the Holy Spirit of God to tell you what the church is to do. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. So what am I inviting you to do today with all of that? Well, number one, three things. I'm asking you, are you saved by this glorious Savior? Do you know our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, personally? Have you come to Him in repentance and faith from your sin and been redeemed? Or are you still putting the dragons on the top and, and keeping them by themselves? Has the cross come forward in your life? And would you be saved? Have you been baptized biblically? You know, the Bible says our mission is to preach the gospel, win people to Christ, and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Have you been biblically baptized by immersion, believing that it is a first obedience after you're saved, and it is a profession of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? If you have been saved and you haven't been baptized, dear brother, you are in disobedience. I didn't say you were lost. I just said you're in, in disobedience, and that's biblical. You need to follow the Lord and believers' baptism. We got a whole body of water right there to baptize. We can help you obey the Lord and be obedient to Him. The second thing I want to talk to you about is are you a member of a church family, the family of God in a local place? Are you at somewhere? Are you at somewhere? Next time you meet somebody who says, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian, say, well, you're at somewhere. Because every Christian was at somewhere in the New Testament. Are you at somewhere? Well, you can join First Baptist Church. You can do it today. You can come by profession of faith saying, I'm here to be saved. And then you are baptized. You become a member of the church. You say, well, why do you have to be baptized to join the church? Because we don't want disobedient members. We got enough disobedience years down the road to deal with. We, we want you to start out right. Amen. That's biblical preaching whether you know it or not. And then you can join by letter from a sister church, a sister Baptist church, like faith and order church. You say, well, my records have been lost, preacher. A preacher, I was saved and baptized years ago out in a church somewhere that closed down, closed its doors. And I don't even know I have the records anymore. Well, you know what? We, we trust you. We believe you. We believe your testimony. If you're lying, we're going to find out soon enough. But we don't believe you're lying. And you just say, I don't have my records. Well, there's, there's a technical term we call by statement. We take your statement of faith and your statement of your baptism. We don't have to baptize you again if you've been biblically baptized once. That's all the Bible requires. That's all the Bible requires. And I want to invite you to join First Baptist Church. December 31st, 2000, First Baptist Church was a perfect church. And then on January 1st, 2001, I joined it. And it wasn't perfect anymore. All right? So you don't worry about that. You just be obedient to the Lord. And then the third thing I want to invite you to do, if you haven't done already... And this is for our membership here. Will you rededicate yourself and place yourself under the lordship of Jesus in accordance with Matthew 28, 19, and 20? Will you pray 
and ask God to burden you with one soul, at least one soul, and make that person your mission for 2023. A child, a relative, a neighbor, a teammate, a schoolmate, a friend, an old friend, a former co-worker, a co-worker. Will you ask God to burden you for one soul that if they died today, they'd be in hell and they need to be saved. They need to be saved now. Will you make that person your mission? Will you put them on the mission list of First Baptist Church so we can be on mission together and pray for them and pray for you as you seek to reach them for the Lord? Will you commit to pray for the missions of your church family? I'm praying. I did it this morning. I do it every morning. I'm saying, God, give us at least 100 people that our members of First Baptist are burdened for, are burdened for. Give us 100 names that we can pray for by name and go after them for the glory of God and the sake of the gospel. Will you put them on our list? Will you commit to pray for the missions of your family together? We're going to have prayer times on Wednesday nights after our activities. We're going to call down heaven on people and pray for them by name and lift them up to the Lord. And then will you make this commitment formal on January 22nd, 2023, our kickoff for Who's Your Mission? Folks, we don't get to do anything else because our master says, I've written these things so you'll know how to conduct yourselves. And the things have been written, the Great Commission. We must be a soul-winning church and a singing church and a scriptural church. You can, don't have to wait until January 23rd to give us your name. Put your name. We got one right there. And I know we got a list going and these blue forms are all over the building. You can fill it out. Tell us about your mission and we'll put it on our list so we can start now. I don't know how many we have now. I know we have, we have several. We're a little bit ahead of the game. But that's the invitation. That is a biblical and proper Response to 1 Timothy 3, 14, 15, and 16. Will you come to Christ if you're not saved today? Will you submit to believers' baptism? Will you join the church family here? Will you? Will you get on mission and participate in who's your mission? Let's stand for our song of appeal as Jay comes. Father, I pray that you have you will take the words of your word despite the messenger today and override and overcome all my frailties and issues and presentation and that you would take your word and seal it in the hearts of every soul here. And Lord, I pray that that person who needs to be saved would be today. You'd convict them and draw them to you today and they'd come forward and let, let us help them. That the believer who's not baptized yet, they'd submit to obedience. Lord, that the family, the one, the two, the four that's looking for a church home, Lord, that it, and if you're leading them here, may they be impressed upon by your Holy Spirit to make it known and come today. And Lord... I pray every member of First Baptist Church, young, old, long time, short time, that they would get a mission. They'd get on mission. And when we ask them, who's your mission, they'd be able to say a name. And there'd be a burden coming across in their voice about that name. And Lord, by or soon, soon we'd see people saved as a result of our people being on mission. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you want to respond to these, one of these three invitations, or all of them, I'm standing up front to help you further your decision. You come as the Spirit leads. This is Cole Andrews. Thank you for tuning in to our sermon podcast. 
Just wanted to encourage you to visit our website, fbcosms.com.